everybody, on today's episode, we're going to be discussing Snatch from the year 2000. We do recommend watching the movie ahead of time. Uh, it will probably increase the listening experience of this podcast. So, Mike, what is Snatch about? You like dogs, John? I had a dog named Hank, me and my mom and I. He was a good dog, good boy. But anyway, you listen here, Nancy. Sometimes you gotta do a good do. You can't be down to see Tom Fuller and you just need a dog, go catch the hair. No matter if you're some transporter fella coming along trying to tell you otherwise from fancy shoes and London accent. Yeah, 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 you and your New York fancy talk, your suits, your fancy shoes, your movie podcast, you better get before you learn what's coming to you. Let me tell you, you stay in the job done, you take one. Periwinkle blue. Howdy boo. Yeah, howdy, 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 boo. Did that cover it? Okay, I have two notes for you, Mike. One, yeah. I'm seriously impressed that you that you actually pulled that off. Secondly, are we canceled now? Yeah, oh, definitely. That, definitely. Was that, was that, Only if was Guy that Ritchie and Brad Pitt are, okay? That's, okay. that's the deal. That's uh, tough. Welcome to This Film Could Be Your Life. I'm not kidding. I'm seriously impressed that you that you that was outed. They should have cast you in this movie. seriously my name is jonathan divine i'm joined as always by mike overstreet you like dags man again doubling again. down i you love had Brad your Pitt. <laughs> as has been covered we are discussing snatch the 2000 the year 2000 british american oh crime comedy uh written and directed by guy ritchie the cinematography was by tim maurice jones it was edited by john harris and the music was by john murphy uh, this movie is set in the London criminal underworld. It contains two intertwined plots, one dealing with the search for a stolen diamond, the other with a small-time boxing promoter who finds himself under the thumb of a ruthless gangster who is ready and willing to have his subordinates carry out severe and sadistic acts of violence. Mm, that's true. Uh, that is true. That is what the movie is about. Mike, I have a quote from Roger Ebert for you yeah. uh, to get going. Ebert had an incredible review of this movie, which Mike and I already discussed. Uh, what am I to say of Snatch, Richie's new film, which follows the lock stock formula so slavishly, it could be like a new arrangement of the same song. Uh, with that in mind, Mike, what is your history watching this movie? Mm, yeah, so I saw this before Lockstock, which probably was a good thing. I actually don't know. Pro I, think I think it was, yeah. I think most people enjoyed both because uh, it was before Guy Ritchie kind of fell out of favor. And they both were pretty fun to watch. But but yeah, so I watched this first. I saw it in high school at kind of the perfect age for a movie like this. Um, and I think it was like honestly the perfect setting. I saw it with some friends following a beach trip, you know, kind of all crammed into a room eating popcorn, being idiots, and uh, it was just a rollicking experience, laughing, falling out of chairs, uh, generally fell in love with it, watched it a million times after that, 
kind of evangelized it to everyone else. Um, I thought it was like God's gift to humanity as a high schooler, uh, who was actually just like, you know, only recently kind of engaging more of Tarantino's movies and kind of like this indie, quick-witted, fast, um, sacrilegious, you know, style of filmmaking. So I adored it. Uh, watched it through college and I mean, just generally have loved it ever since. I, uh, I did see... Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels first, which we may or may not have, have mentioned by name. That was Richie's debut film release, I think, two or three years before this one. Yeah. That, as has been alluded to, shares a lot of similarities with this movie. And, and that will come up a lot over the course of this podcast. It certainly came up a lot, uh, as Mike and I both discerned through the um, critical response to this movie. Uh I definitely, I, I, so I saw Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels first. I was actually explaining to Mike right before the podcast started that I saw this movie in right around the same time I was first being exposed to this kind of really exciting indie filmmaking from mm. around like the 90s, turn of the century. Um, you know, I was probably like 14 or 16, so, you know, also a teenager. Uh, which, and this would have been 2000, I guess, six, 2005 ish. And yeah, this movie, or rather, um, excuse me, Lock, Sock and Two Smoking Barrels was like this amazing movie to me. And it, it was just this really, really exciting feeling. It, it was, it was funny. It was unique. It was unlike anything I'd seen. It had this strange intertwining plot um, and I already said it was funny. I, sh- I should have elaborated. It was hilarious. It was yeah. one of the funniest things I'd ever seen. Yeah, yeah. And when I saw Snatch, I had the same initial reaction as a lot of critics, which is I was very much torn given how much this felt like a rehash of Lock, Sock, and Two Smoking Barrels. Um, what's funny is I-, I-, I definitely enjoyed it, but I didn't go back to rewatch it. What's funny is on the rewatch for this podcast, possibly because I had kind of had my expectations set low, I actually, it really jumped up in my estimation, which mm. I've, I've mentioned that has happened for me a couple times on this podcast, but rewatching it, there's some really strong problems with the movie, which we're going to discuss, but it's just such a fun experience to watch it. And there's it is. Yeah. so many little jokes and little moments and little touches that just make it really, really charming. I feel, it feels like a charming movie, which is weird to say because it's so um, grimy in a lot of ways. Not, not like, not like in terms of outlook, but just in terms of subject matter, you know, it, yeah. it's very and, violent. And and all it's the very... characters are schmucks. I mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it's got a lot of heart to it. And it's, it's just got a lot of, it's just, it's just fun. And it's just yeah. a journey. It's just a, a, a great experience. Yeah. Uh, so I, I was much, much, rate, rose a lot in my estimation, I guess well, I would say. On the well, and it, it's weird, I think, because of that charm and, and that oddball kind of comedy and, and just generally the vibe of it. I don't know if you had this sensation, but I remember feeling like I had, I had stumbled on like a, a great secret, right? When I first saw Lockstock in this movie where it was back in the day before I had was like living on the internet. So when someone was like, mm. Hey, you should check out this movie. Like I had never heard of it. And I was like, has no one seen this? And honestly, most people my age had it. So it was kind of like yeah. discovering like this little piece of gold, like a little diamond, right. 
um, that was super fun and enjoyable that you just kind of wanted to show off to your friends. I don't know if you had that experience, but that was definitely part of that, that warmth. Yeah. And you just made me remember, I'm fairly certain that that's actually why I saw Lockstock initially. There was this movie podcast I really liked. And they were talking about probably Sherlock Holmes or one of those movies mm. that, that released around that time. And one of them said something to the effect of it, you know, Lockstock is this amazing movie. And I'd never heard of it. And actually, to be honest with you, to this day, I haven't met many people who have seen it. Yeah. Even among yeah. movie people, it's a little yeah. bit beneath the radar. Uh, and I went back and watched it. it. It just, like I said, it blew my mind. So I, I think you're absolutely on the money. It kind of, that experience of it not being this film culture-y kind of thing yet, or, or me not being as immersed in that culture yet, definitely made it more exciting to watch. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I don't know, Mike, if you're ready to go, we can just start start getting into it. Well, actually, do you want to spend some time just talking about Guy Ritchie real quick? I honestly, at this moment, I should go ahead and confess, I have seen remarkably few Guy Ritchie movies. Uh, I, maybe this could have fit into the history section. I've seen, I saw Lockstock, I saw Snatch, I love them both. And then I saw the first Sherlock Holmes and genuinely hated it. Yeah. Like, it, it is seriously one of my least favorite movies I think- I've ever seen in a theater. And I never, I just never saw any other, other of his movies. I, I kind of just, just... Call it there. Uh, yeah. So I don't know. Do you have any... What, what's your experience? Yeah, I think I, I generally ag- agree with you. I mean, that's what makes him such a complicated director for me is that you have these mm-hmm. two movies that were like so critical in my engagement of cinema, especially at like a perfect age between Lockstock and Snatch, which are just so good in my opinion. But then after that, he is... I, I don't think I can think of a director who has made less interesting things to me. I mean, he has not made anything after those movies that have even really remotely interested me. I think like the most obvious example is Sherlock Holmes, like you said, but generally his movies feel like he kind of made these two bangers and then he had nothing else of note to really said. And it just feels like he's kind of getting bigger and bigger projects, but he's rehashing them in kind of a, I don't mean to be mean, but like a vapid way where it lacks the heart of these topics and just tries to sure. like cover that over with the same tricks, you know, fast cuts, loud, loud pop music, needle drops, quick banter, pretty excessive violence at times. And it also feels like as his career went on, he moved away from the actors that worked really well with his scripts, whether that's Statham or in this movie, Brad Pitt. And I don't know, I, I just wanted to at least comment on him because I, I do feel like and I won't spoil your take later, but he is kind of a poor man's Tarantino in how some of this stuff mm. um, veers out of control, I think, for him in terms of his voice and his style and the success of those things. So, yeah, I just wanted to note he's complicated for me because these two films are high in my estimations of movies that I enjoy watching and rewatching. And yet it's rare to have a director who does nothing else after capturing my imagination so strongly. I hate to say the words sold out. And I yeah. think that they are often misused and misunderstood. And, and generally, it's a stupid diagnosis. But I think it might apply here pretty well. Yeah. Right? You, you think about his, you know, I, I actually forgot. I just pulled up his filmography. I forgot he did Aladdin in 2019. And that's yeah. tough. Um, it really is kind of a looking over just his whole thing. He had, he had those really exciting moments right at the beginning 
And then it feels like since 2009, he's kind of cashing checks. And, you know, on the one hand, that's okay. And, I, and, you know, also that's a narrative I'm reading into it. Like, I don't know, maybe he was really, really excited about King Arthur. About writing the, the screenplay of Aladdin live action movie. Yeah. yeah definitely. Yeah, maybe that really, really, <laughs> he was just so excited about it. But I'm going to hazard a guess that, you know, there's there was money involved and more power to him. But... Yeah, that in, in a sense, that's a little bit disappointing. Yeah. Um, but yeah. at any rate, certainly I do think these movies uh, uh, really stand the test of time. Uh, one quick aside, Mike, I'm curious, because you said more than almost any director, uh, he's made his follow-ups have been uninteresting to you. Would you, because this is, I, I would say this, and I'm just curious where, where you are. Would you say that as much as Neil Blomkamp's follow-ups have failed they've still been kind of intriguing at least on the premise i was oh, really yeah. interested in yeah. what elysium was going to be and what chappie was going to be absolutely i yeah. feel like the problem was execution those trailers maybe other things, got me but. super amped and then they were terrible movies but but yeah i mean like i don't think i've seen a trailer for a guy Ritchie movie since these two where i was like can't wait for that to come out i mean yeah, it, it, yeah. it's strange it's it's very strange i i I also hate the term sellout, but I think it's accurate. It's just, it feels yeah. like he, you know, you make a lot of money and forget who you are like a miracle. Like, you know, <laughs> I don't know. Um, but yeah, I think that's, it's an interesting comparison point for sure. Yep. Just to note uh, to anyone listening, Mike and I are willing to sell out. Frankly, oh yeah. At the drop of a offer hat. me yeah, any we- amount of money, 50 bucks. You can you could buy this podcast. Get your foot cream as the very standard little. bearer of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, great. Well, uh, yeah, let's get into it. Let's so do it. So the way we divide this podcast, we basically have four sections of how we talk about the movie. We start with what worked. Then we move on to what maybe didn't work, what held the movie back. Uh, later on, we'll have some stray thoughts. And then way later in the podcast, we each have some essays we've prepared. Uh, but for now, let's just talk about why this movie worked. What made this movie good? Uh, as usual, I have a few categories. I actually only have three now that mm. I look at it. But yeah. they're pretty over overarching, I think. So yeah. if it's okay with you, Mike, I, I could just kick us off. Yeah, man. I think the biggest takeaway I have when I watch this movie or Lockstock, but we should probably stop talking about Lockstock. The biggest takeaway I have is the amount of energy and kineticism yes. that is in the filmmaking of this movie. Mm. I think, you know, one name that kept coming up for me was Edgar Wright, because Edgar Wright is very similar to me in that respect, but has has maintained this over his whole career. But early Guy Ritchie, I think there's a lot of similarities there, right? Because sure. they both, they're both... When I was trying to figure out a word, I was thinking, you know, they both push every single element of filmmaking forward with every shot that they direct. Yes. Like, they are, they seem to constantly be looking for, well, what if I tried this weird thing? Or what if I tried this weird thing? Like, they have this restless energy and this freewheeling approach. Um, they and, and they have, like, all these different tricks. They're, they're, they're going through all these different things just to make every single moment of the movie kind of almost, it's, it's like, like making it all shiny, making it all something you want to see more of. You're, you're, you know, you get so excited just in the course of watching the movie. Um, you know, it's, it's, it could even be said to, and I, I kind of am ripping this off one of the critics, but I think it's a positive thing. 
it, it kind of takes the stylization so far that it almost becomes self-parody, right? That, yeah. You know, there, there's just every single moment has all of these different things happening to make it just a little bit more exciting. Um, to, to call out, if it's okay, Mike, just to call out a couple moments and specifically that, that, you know, even something as small as when Boris the Blade is going to, to Saul and is talking to them. And the way the shot is constructed, when you're looking at Saul talking to Boris, there's a, there's a security camera feed in the left-hand corner of the screen that's showing you Boris. So every time you're cutting back, you're still seeing both characters talking. It's really yes. it's hard to describe in words because it's obviously a visual flair. But there's so many weird little things like that. One of my absolute favorites is when Frankie uh, Fourfingers, who's Benicio Del Toro, is on the phone with Cousin Avi. Uh-huh. Yeah. And while he's on the phone, he's at the tailors getting measured. And even though it's one conversation that's like you know 45 seconds long... Every single time we cut back to uh, Frankie Fourfingers, he's wearing a different suit, which yeah, doesn't make any awesome. sense in terms yeah, of continuity. No continuity. Whatsoever. But again, it's just fun. You're, it's just it tickles your eyes. You're just excited. It's just like an interesting thing to look at. Um, speaking of Cousin Avi, all of those little quick cut sequences when he's flying from the uh-huh. U.S. to oh, London. Oh, it's so memorable. And yes, and. And it makes something like, I, I think the thing I want to center on is like, you know, that sequence in the hands of a normal director would be very boring. Like, you don't realize how often there's like a playbook for that. It's like, yeah. okay, you put on yeah. some interesting music, you show a plane, you know, you, you, whatever, you maybe have someone walking through an airport and it's like, okay, that's a billion movies you've seen that do that. Yes. But what makes Guy Ritchie in this movie so exciting is he's like, well, that's a normal kind of sequence, but what can I do to make it? Just a little bit different, just a little bit more kinetic, or in that case, actually very different, but, you know, more kinetic, more exciting, something that you haven't seen before, even though it's essentially performing the same function in the plot. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's my biggest thing for why the movie works. But what, what, what do you have on that, Mike? Well, no, yeah, I, I think the two words that I wrote down was one. Guy Ritchie style is propulsive, which is exactly what you're saying. It's just constantly moving forward faster and faster and faster and faster, which is super 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 just built into his style as a director you know he is just like the king of fast cuts and split screens and all this stuff that like you said in the hands of someone who's not equipped for it is actually going to be distracting and terrible and it just gives this movie a, a, a sense of electricity like it is truly electric snatches to me um as high voltage of a movie really as you get you know i always i always think about the cold open where, you know, it has Turkish. He says, what do I know about diamonds? And it goes straight into the, the strange rabbinical conversation on the virgin birth. And then it's this diamond robbery where the camera is like spinning around. Like it's literally the frame is like doing circles, which almost gives you a headache. But even building up to that, there's like that neat little directing trick of moving with the characters between the security cameras as they converse. I was going to say that. Yeah. 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 That they have this long thing of them walking into the building, but all we see it from is the security cameras. Yeah. It's somehow it works great. Yeah. And it's so cool. And then that obviously builds right into what is now wildly kind of copycatted, which is the introduction of every character with the colored out kind of drawing version of them and their name slapped onto the screen. And um, and the banging, you know, intro song. So in that entire opening scene is what you is what it's like a microcosm of what you're talking about. He essentially has like this bag of tricks that he loads into a shotgun 
and then just buck shots, right? And some of it hits, yeah. some of it gives you a headache, but what it all does together is it makes it just a thrill to watch because it's always something explosive and exciting and and just kick, kicked up to the 10th degree. So I think the only other point I would have to say on the propulsion of the movie, though, is that it actually pairs incredibly well with the script, right? The script yeah. is generally as perfectly quick-witted, snappy, people talking faster than you can even track sometimes as like you can imagine. And it's almost like he wraps his style around that script, or even though it's probably like a both and. Like they're both hugging each other. And it's that perfect yeah. combination where the fast cuts really match up really great with like the bits and the quickness of which these characters are prodding at each other and talking and setting up exposition um, to make it just exciting. And yeah, yeah, I don't know. They're they're a perfect marriage, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I totally agree. And especially, you know, the one thing you hinted at at the end there is the way that the, the filmmaking and the kinetic style is always in service of something. It's not just, yes. he's not doing it just for kicks. Uh, nine times out of 10, the service is humor. But even then, that's I, I love that, right? Like yeah. taking a moment to make something way fun. Like one of my favorite little moments when in the first fight, when Mickey is is fighting the boxer, um, not 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 curious, not George, the the boxer in the ring that yeah. you know yeah. he has to go down in the fourth, and when he knocks the guy out in the first round, and the camera zooms in <laughs> yes. on Bricktop <laughs> and Tommy and Turkish, and it's hysterical, and it's just a zoom in. And you think not that you know not every director would be able to do that or would think to do that and and stuff like that moments like that where again the the film work is making the humor land or is making the maybe it's not making the drama land we'll get to the drama later but yeah. you know it, it it it's in service of the movie and I think I agree with you absolutely that that's yeah it, it's just so cool at this point we're very close to it so might as well mention my next big point is this is just a hysterical movie. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. I kind of forgot yes, this, yes. actually. But this is uh. one of... It actually reminds me most of, of I want to say, of Airplane. Because I kind of forgot that, like, nearly every single moment of the movie... Not quite. There's, there's scenes that aren't. But nearly every second of the movie, there's a joke somewhere to be yeah, found. Yeah, it's or a like bit. like a gag yeah. to be found. Or yeah. A little, like, e even something as small as, like, you know, a character who's who's... What's the one at, at the beginning, the guy, when he asks the guy how long the sausage are going to take, and he says, a few, yeah. he five, says five, five minutes, minutes. Turkish. <laughs> and then he asks him a few minutes, or like 30 seconds later, and he says 10 minutes. Yeah. And Turkish just looks at, looks at him for a second. And just the smallest things. Um, you know, we've done this before, Mike, and if you're game for it, do you just want to stack a few of our favorite, you know, we can go back and forth with some of our favorite uh, bits in the movie and just kind of collect everything into this one section. Yeah. Otherwise we'll it. just keep calling. Absolutely. Things out. Absolutely. Um, I just, so like the number of times bullet tooth Tony has to shoot Boris when they're <laughs> in the hallway. And it's one, it, it's a few more. Cause I remember the bit in general. Cause so in this you know, Boris has been said like he's unkillable. He's been shot so many times. So finally Tony like shoots him in the hallway when they're, they're looking for the diamond, blah, blah, blah. And then with the camera on Tony trying to interrogate this other guy, Tyrone, we keep hearing Boris get back up. I'll kill you. And then Tony looks back and shoots him again. Don't make me do and it. That Boris. same thing happens. 
<laughs> same thing happens, I swear, like five or six times in a row. And by the end, and then of course, in the in the little dramatic irony, he then doesn't have enough bullets to actually kill Tyrone, which is just incredible. Like all the, like moments like that happen constantly. Uh, Mike, what do you got? Oh, I mean, for me, whenever I think of this movie, it is the caravan conversation. Um, yep. Which yep. I actually just think, let's just cut that into the podcast. I'm calling your mama Tom. I just meant. And I save your breath and cured your parts. Hey, look, she wants a heck of two roof lights. Uh, the sinus house frame furniture. And the uh, scarf cushions with uh, matching shack by cover. Okay. Right. It's a terrible parcel to the Paddywinkle Blue Bags. Have I made myself clear, Bags? Yeah, that's perfectly clear, Mickey, yeah. Just give me one minute to confer with my colleague. Yeah, I just, I just love the the periwinkle blue at the end. Is like, it gets me every time. I don't know why, but again, and we're gonna talk about Brad Pitt later. But there's just so many great little bits in these characters talking about a caravan. And Turkish and Tommy are like, but we were supposed to get a caravan from you. And it's just like the <laughs> irony of it, and it's such a funny scene. Um, I don't know. I don't it's even incredible. have any more to add. It's just an incredible scene. Um, and Absolutely. then relatedly, real quick, I also love how the Pikeys, in general, anytime something is said, repeat each other. When it's a, it's for his ma, his what? And they all together go, his ma. <laughs> like, Mom. It's so funny. <laughs> it's incredible. Um, I mentioned Tyrone in the last one. Just, <laughs> like, the entire scene of Tyrone driving uh, Saul, and, and I, yeah, I forget his other name, but the other character. I don't want that dog dribbling on my seats. Your seat? Tyrone, this is a stolen car, mate. While I'm at the wheel, it's my car. So stop that dog dribbling on my seats. All right? I, I don't it. want that dog dribbling on my seats. Dribbling on... <laughs> it's a stolen car, and they can't get over the amount of times they go back and forth about him being upset at the dog drooling and them being like, it's not your car. Um... <laughs> What's the other one from that I actually scene? wrote... It, he wrote, it, uh, it was a funny angle. It's behind you, Tyrone. When you reverse, <laughs> things come from behind you. <laughs> and even before that, when he looks at the gap and he says, "It's too, there's not enough room, and they just pause and look at it. It's this gargantuan <laughs> gap. And he says, you could park an aircraft carrier in that. It's incredible. Oh, my uh, God. Yeah, another, I mean, it's funny because I actually don't know where I stand on Cousin Avi in this movie as a performance. I think I like a, it. I, I love it. Yeah, I think I like I, it. I unequivocally love it. He's just the only one for me that I'm always like, ah, eh, sometimes you're so annoying. Uh, but man, when he does the... 86 carats. Where? London. 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 London? Yes, London. You know, fish, chips, cup of tea... Bad food, worse weather, Mary fucking Poppins, London. It's just yeah. like my best. Do you have anything to She's declare, sir? <laughs> Don't go to London. <laughs> Whatever. I was going to say, he's got a couple moments. Uh, that one hits. This one was in my stray thoughts, actually, because it's this is weird, and I don't even know if this is actually meant to be funny, but I find it incredible, which is the moment when he's chasing the dog. or like So, so the dog jumps out the window uh, with the diamond, and he sees it and he starts running out the store and he says almost like in like an Errol Flynn, you know, adventure film. He's like, come on, Tony, let's go. Yeah. And he starts running for the door and then he kind of stops. And he's like, Tony. And he starts 
yes. very slowly going back into the room. And then yep. with the camera just on him, looks down, looks down at Toady, looks at his gun, looks back at Toady, and realizes basically that he has just shot Toady. And then it hard cuts to him flying back to the U.S., yes. apparently yes. just giving up. That's an incredible sequence. I love that. Yep, yep. Uh, before I forget, I also had one of my straight thoughts I'll throw in here now. Also related to caravans. Uh, that's just when Brad Pitt yells, what the F do I want with a caravan that has no effing wheels? Which is like, I don't know why, but it's like they they sold them the caravan without wheels. And he's yeah, just like, I that- don't... <laughs> And he like screams at them. It's so funny. Brad Pitt in general is just incredible in this oh, movie. Yeah. I don't uh, want to get to that. I have so many notes on Brad Pitt. We'll get Pitt, to that. But... Uh, actually, though, that that is mostly what I. I mean, there's every second there's some funny gag, but that's mostly yeah. what I had for yeah. the humor. Do you have anything else on that? Uh, one last shout out. My friends and I used to say to each other all the time, "Protection from what? The Germans." Like we just would say <laughs> the Germans all the time after seeing this movie. I love so. how even within the movie, he goes back to that bit a couple times. Yeah, yeah. He, yeah. he himself brings that out for a lot. Uh, it's incredible. It's a hysterical movie. Uh, part of how the humor lands, of course, is the cast, and the, everyone kills it mm. in this movie. Yep, yep. Um, I feel like we might have a disagreement with my my first point, which is I thought Jason Statham's incredible in this movie, and I, I it's time I confess, I just like Jason Statham a lot. Yeah, I actually, yeah. I, I'm kind of sad. I feel like he should have had a bigger career. I mean, I think he's doing quite well for himself, so no worries there. I wanted, when I wrote Mike, and I don't even know if you'll agree with this, I wanted more of this movie in The Italian Job and less of The Transporter and Crank. Yeah. Which, to the casual listener, there may not be a difference. I, I think that this in The Italian, there, there's something more ironically grounded about these movies than those yeah, movies. He, he definitely went for the more off the deep end, I think, um, uh, crazy criminal movies and less of the like really weird and quirky, but still relatively uh, grounded, I guess. I can't think of a yeah. different word. No, I these think- kinds of gangster movies or criminal movies, I think suited him a lot better in my opinion. I, I think in general, this movie's, I mean, greatest strength is its characters, which are then brought to life by wonderful performances. They're all quirky. They're all wildly insane. And this is kind of where I'm bringing it back around to Statham. Everyone else in this movie is down to ham and to chew on scenery as much as possible. And what I did not remember about Jason Statham in this early part of his career is that he is a fantastic audience stand-in. Like, he is doing... Very little, and that's good. That's a very good thing. He is like the normal person surrounded in this mob of insanity. Yeah. Yeah. And he actually plays that really well. You know, I think we disagree. Maybe we don't disagree. I think he does that really well. All I was trying to say is he's probably one of the... He stands out the least in this movie, but that's a good thing, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So when I'm thinking of like the memorable characters i'm gonna think of mickey i'm gonna think of bullet to tony because they are so over the top but ultimately he's doing exactly what he's asked to do in this movie and i actually think what a lot of people just lose sight of with jason tatum future directors that guy Ritchie got is that you should just ask it's kind of like keanu reeves ask him to do just this amount right don't ask him to do yeah. more 
because ultimately I think he tries to do more in some of the following films. He's not successful and he just veers into kind of bread and butter, which is action hero. And I, I agree with you. I miss him in these yeah. kind of dramas, not dramas, but you know, crime movies. I think he's great in this. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I think we're on the same, on the same page on that. So yeah. I'm there for that. Uh, this is a huge cast, and you know we could talk oh about everyone. God. All of them. I, I had a few standouts. Uh, I'll just roll through these actually. Yeah. Stephen Graham, who I didn't know who this was, but Tommy, mm, great lovable idiot, really yep. enjoy. Yeah, perfect lovable. Idiot. Well, he's introduced as a little brother to Turkish, and yeah. so encapsulates little brother energy. <laughs> yes, right? that's so. And everything fun. he does, and you know from buying the oversized gun to to you know being sent on little errands and totally screwing them up and yeah and that's and, so yeah, open. I, I just think yeah. it's great yeah um benicio del toro who's not in this movie as much as i remember no he's I really actually got killing him off like 30 minutes a, to work with yeah is a really fun choice he's probably he's like the biggest actor other than brad pitt in this movie and guy Ritchie flicks his wrist and he's gone after 30 minutes yeah <laughs> But in those thirty minutes, he really lands it. Yeah, I think he's he's actually one of the funniest parts. When they we didn't mention this in the Hebrew thing, but every time they cut back to the Viva Las Vegas thing <laughs> yes. with the with all the quick cuts, and the, that's he's incredible. Every single time, money. I laugh. Every yeah, time. <laughs> and he's always losing money. Uh, and they cut back to it constantly. Yeah, I think that that stuff like that is just so good. And yes. He's got yes. that weird, I mean, he definitely brings that weird Benicio Del Toro kind of vibe, but it actually serves this movie very well. Yeah. You know, he always reminded me of uh, Jeff Goldblum. Sure. He always, like, like every now and then he's, like, very serious, different, dramatic actor. But mostly he seems to play these strange little bit parts where he brings so much of his own vibe into the part. Yes. But yes. it works. But he makes it work for the movie, right? It does. Um, yeah, he's great. I, I love him in this movie. Um, Dennis Farini, Farina, excuse me, who I didn't think I knew beforehand, but he plays cousin Avi, mm-hmm. uh, is is secretly one of the funniest parts of this entire movie. I think he <laughs> he's just brings this this very unique. It's funny you said Statham is an audience stand-in because weirdly he kind of performs a lot of the same things at first since he is new to the role to the world and things keep being explained. To sure. Him. Yeah. But once yeah. he's in the story, he's like, has this manicness to him. Yeah. He's I just insane. really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah. He's, he ends up being almost the prime driver of the story. I think of, especially of the diamond plot in the second half of the movie. Uh, well, it, it, yeah. he does, he does a really good job of being someone who's like overcompensating to be like, Oh, I get how all this works. And then that's what also makes that final scene where he like looks at the gun and then runs. Cause it's like, you suddenly yeah. realize he's like, I've been way over my head. Like, <laughs> I am, this is not the world for me. I have murdered a man. I need to go home. Like I need to, I just need to leave. Yeah. No Cause good. there's and, so many scenes where he's like, Oh, that's a good strategy, but uh, you know, very effective, but brutish. And you're like, Oh, this is a guy trying to act like he belongs in the same car as bullet to Tony. And he just doesn't realize that he is way over his head. He is underwater. Yeah. You know, I think the other moment that sells that is when he does get into the hallway and on the one side, he's got Saul and them who are trying to yes. steal the diamond to pay off Bricktop. And on the other side, he has Boris and he just, I think he says something like, I'm just done with this. I'm just, yeah. this, I'm over yeah. this. This is yes. just too much. It's incredible. Uh, 
we've somehow gotten this long without saying the name Brad Pitt. I mean, we oh, have no. a podcast. But, I need to cook. You need uh, to move out of my yeah, way. I, yeah, to, I'm just going to give I it. I'm just going to throw ISO. it. <laughs> Brad I'm going to throw it to you, Mike. Brad Pitt is a lord, capital L-O-R-D, in this movie. He is a god. This is like, this is character at, actor Brad Pitt that you just sometimes forget exists because he's like not a movie star in this movie. He's just this delightful, beautiful character that he is fully committed to being. And it's insane. Like, I don't know his, his performance. What can I say about it? First of all, I think his line delivery in this movie is top five ever in cinematic history. I do not know. It's incredible. How he delivered these lines with that accent. so well, but he nails all of them. There is not a single statement that he says in this movie that is not flawless and hilarious and perfect and wonderful. <laughs> and I love him. Um, it's also probably a top five most fun performance that I can think of in terms of just a dude having fun in a movie. And then I think to be a little bit more serious, it's an amazing physical performance. Like the way that his tongue slaps around and he's twitchy and he has that mischievous smile uh, he like embodies this completely like chaotic, neutral energy jester character. And it's delightful. I don't know what else to say, man. He is a God in this movie. He brings so much life to it. And he is so deeply just delved into this character that it, it pops off the screen. It is one of those performances that you could put next to like the Heath Ledger Joker in the sense that whenever he is on the screen, he is all you are looking at and listening to because he's magnetic yeah. and it's so good. Mike, is this the apex of handsome and charismatic actor goes to any lengths to make himself uh, weird yeah. to, not, you know, to, to, <laughs> <Yes>. to be, <laughs> to be not those things. And he's, it's not to say he's not charismatic in this movie. He's very, like you said, you love watching him. He's fun, but it's definitely like, man, Brad Pitt really wants us to know that he's not like a traditional leading man. Paul yeah. Newman would never have taken this role. No, <laughs> would no. never have played this. Like it's this. such a funny uh, thing to do back to back with drive and Ryan Gosling. Yeah. Where you think about stereotype busting. This is the other way you go to bust your stereotype. <laughs> it's incredible. And yeah, it's weirdly similar to fight club in terms of like the physicality of it, mm, yeah. you know, like I, yeah. and, which came out one year before. So it's, it's just weird to think about that. It's like, yeah, he's got this, interesting sort of one-two punch right mike yeah mike one-two punch oh god what a, a, a fight club in in the... what a disaster this has turned out i to mean be. we can announce i guess that this is the last episode yeah this, this is film. it's over mike it was out. a good run it was yeah we did great not enjoyable <laughs> I, I, i'm out uh, we already mentioned Bullet. Did you have anything else on Brad Pitt? I just no. need to get to that point. I think I've gushed enough, that, yeah. Cool. Uh, we've already mentioned Bullet Tooth Tony. Vinny Jones, there's this whole oh there's this God. whole thing about Vinny Jones, which is like he was, I think he was like a wrestler or something, and then was discovered. All I know is he is he's the then, Midnight Meatster in Midnight Meat Train. And that's that all. True? Yeah, he plays the Midnight wow. Meat Man. <laughs> I think he's gotten like, I think, I think there's some weird stuff about him. Like in the last 15 years, like, like weird political opinions or stuff like that. Yeah. Well, let's just ignore that because we don't know it. (laughs) Don't like Um, that. 
don't like it, so just don't think about it. That's, you know, we, we're good at that. At any rate, he is incredible in this movie. Yes. And it's fun how he's so <laughs> yes. different. What I, what I do really like is how he is also in Lockstock, but plays an extremely different character. In yes. Lockstock, he's like a dad who's like very like, even though he is like, he's still a hard-nosed criminal, but he's like moralistic in a way where this movie he's not. Yeah. Um, let's just shout out the how speech he that get, he gives. How, how does it compare? Or, yeah. Well, how does it compare to Juggernaut in X-Men Last Stand performance? Oh my God, he was Juggernaut in X-Men Last Stand. <laughs> I have driven that movie out of my head. For ten years, and then you spring this on me. So this is better. I genuinely you would say this is better. Can't think of a movie I've worked harder to forget in my this. Entire. This one's better than that's your estimation. This one's better. Oh god. Right, go before on. Go you, on. Go on. Before you solate our podcast um, by referencing when are we doing X Men Last crime, Stand? I I will literally quit the podcast before that. You can you can do it. Bring in someone else. Get someone else to edit it. I'm I the juggernaut. <laughs> um, back to this movie though. The speech he gives in the bar when they're holding him up and just like the gravity, the slow, slow pushing on the camera and like the moment when he says, and you have replica written on the side of your guns and I have Desert Eagle 0.50 on the side of my gun. So I think it is, it could honestly be one of the, coolest little speeches i've heard in a like one of the most badass speeches i've heard in yeah a movie. i think it's i think so that's good the scene that's one of the three scenes that i immediately bring to mind when i think of this movie is the desert yeah. eagle 0.50 i will always and it's so weird the like the parts of that performance in that scene that i remember like i always remember that he sees them in the reflection of his glass he like coolly looks over the counter at the bartender and then, like nonchalantly, goes and sits down, and then it right into that. You have replica written down the side of your gun. It's it's so yeah. coolly intimidating. That's like the words that came to mind when I was watching it, where he's just so calm. And like you said, there's it's almost like the I love what you said the gravity of the room. It's like the air is getting tighter and tighter around these people, and all he's doing is talking. It's like he's so chill. It's it's amazing. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, awesome. it's right up there with uh honestly those that line about the replicant of desert eagle that's right there with for you the day that i came to your village and murdered your parents was the most important day of your life for me it was tuesday cut, cut that it's still the, the single greatest slide yes still the single yes. greatest slide of any villain and any, any when's the street fighter pot? is that street oh, fighter I'm yes sure it, it is, is. Oh, i was in mortal combat no that's street fighter that's street fighter baby okay. how dare you how dare you? That's bison. Bisonopolis. Those movies kind of. Those movies kind of. How kind dare of you? Flow together for me. I'm not going to apologize for that. How you can dare keep. You, you can I've keep never, on it. I, I, I have you know. never been more offended on this podcast than I am right now. <sighs> Mike, do you want to talk about any of the other actors? I mean, every, everyone's incredible in this movie. I yeah. Don't know. What do you want? From yeah, me? I want to. I just want to shout out a few. We don't have to spend any time on them. I think Alan Ford is bricked up. Is like perfectly swarm swarmy and gross oh, yeah 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 the when he says the sugar no thanks i'm sweet enough it's like it's just disgusting he's just a disgusting person um <sighs> but i love him he, he does a, such a good job with the character you know i love seeing lenny james pre-walking dead i actually really like yeah. that actor uh he he just him and his three his two friends tyrone god bless him 
I love that guy. <laughs> and then the last one is, and I don't know if I can pronounce this guy's name right. Um, Raid Serbedja. Serbedja. Okay. Sure. Raid Serbedja. Boris the Blade. Whatever. Yeah. Uh, I love him in this movie. I don't think, you already hinted at it. I don't think there's a better character death like on cinematic history, but his death is hilarious. And it's so yeah. good. It's, it's, it's great. Uh, I'll be honest. I, that covers what worked for me. I had those three big categories and that was okay. basically, I mean, you know, those are pretty broad. Did you have got, anything else? For yeah. I got this movie works. I got two more. Um, briefly, I think the soundtrack and sound editing, I mean, it kind of fits in that propulsive franticness of the movie. But I, I love the movie's main theme. I think it's just it's a classic in my mind that just draws me to a place in time. And John, if you can find that, that would be like a cool thing to throw in. Yeah. Um, And then beyond that, I just think it's a fantastic, like, criminal heist score. Like, in terms of it has, like, these great little jazzy background music at time with the flutes and stuff. But then it blends that with this, like, kind of quirky, unique character music. Like, when Boris shows up and it does, like, the like the little shrill spider walking kind of sound. Um, yeah. It's silly. It's overdone. But it's also really fun, which kind of fits with the rest of the movie. And then obviously Guy Ritchie is is one of the kings of just like great needle drops at times. And there's at oh. least five in this movie that are glorious. Yeah. So um, shout out to Angel from Massive Attack makes actually comes up a couple times, uh, mostly in dramatic scenes that otherwise don't maybe land. But yeah, that's a great song. So you're right. He's, he's got he absolutely lands that. Yeah. And then the, the last thing I would say is uh, the boxing matches in this movie are chef's kiss. Right. Guy Ritchie, yeah. he messes up some things, but like the first match with Brad Pitt is just legendary and it's ingrained in my memory forever. It has the humor of him stretching the whole time. It has an unbelievable turn where he takes his shirt off and he's just covered in tattoos. And he says, what is it? You're not going anywhere. You tick womp. You stay until the job's done. And then bam, yeah. he knocks out uh, the big man and the folk song kicks in, which is another great little needle drop. And it, I don't know. There's just like, and then the final fight, too, where he has the the amazing little ending where he gets uppercut and he's falling and it has the great shot of him horizontal from the two different angles before he comes back up and knocks the guy out. I just think this is those scenes are some of where Guy Ritchie's at his best, where it's like the frenetic action, the great music, a great lead performance, and just like hand-to-hand combat. I agree. I'm there. Uh... Well, I sort of agree. Let's okay. get into why this movie didn't work. Mm. Uh, How dare you? This this wasn't my first point, but do you not think the second boxing match? There, or let me let me back up. There's a couple scenes in this movie that are played kind of straight in terms of just being like mostly dramatic, and a lot of those scenes I I I kind of just find I'm bored in. In the second or possibly third boxing match, the final boxing match. As much as there's all of those cool visuals, there's this moment when he goes underwater, blah, blah, blah. 
I kind of felt that I was getting really bored at a certain point in that scene. And that could just be the effect of I've seen the movie and I know where it's going. So I'll, I'll accept it if you disagree, but that's well, that left kind of a bad taste in my mouth for the uh, for the, the the boxing, you know. Is yeah. I, I just felt like uh, I kind of want to get I kind of want to get past this. So you're not there. I, no, I, well, I'm not there overall with the boxing. I still think he shoots boxing just phenomenally well. Um, I think one of the things they were tapping into is a point that I kind of have generally about Guy Ritchie, which is that since he so often leans into propulsion over substance to like a massive degree at any points that he misses the pacing, it is going to feel apparent like night and day. Right. So that sure. is a, I think that last fight goes on too long. I think he, he doesn't need to show us every round of that boxing match. And it's a weird choice that he does. And it's just a miscue. And for most directors, that miscue isn't going to feel like a, you know, isn't going to be obvious. It's not going to be felt. And in this case, because generally his movies thrive off of being nonstop, move, 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 you feel it really strongly. So I, I think I agree with you to agree about that scene. I don't think that has anything to do with the boxing. It's that suddenly he made a misstep and his flaws like kind of like light up with neon lights in that moment. Does that make sense? I agree with that. I, I can I can accept that. And yeah, again, sort of a segue into a couple of the other scenes of, of quote unquote more dramatic moments, I think maybe suffer from the same thing yes. as and also kind of have layers of is this plot really working? I guess I mostly want to call out one big plot moment. And then honestly, I don't have very many why this movie didn't work. So I want to call out one plot moment that's coupled with a quote-unquote dramatic scene that just makes no sense to me. Mm. And that is why uh, Bricktop murders Mickey's mother. Yeah. So I think, and, and you know, we've said before, a plot hole has to be noticed within the viewing of the movie. I was so confused the first time I saw the movie that yes. I thought I missed something. I was like... Wait, 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 what's going on? Is if, because if Bricktop wants Mickey to fight for him, in fact, needs Mickey to fight for him in order to pay off his debts, his goal or his theory was let me kill his mom yeah, to get yeah. him to fight. And I'm and in my head. I'm like, that's just, that doesn't make sense. And the movie appears to go with it, but then Mickey, you know, obviously retaliates. So I guess the movie kind of agrees, but the logic at the beginning of that is so unsound that I was just confused. And then that dramatic moment, even though it's very good acting, but when that intense song is playing and um, Mickey is, is fighting against his, his friends who are holding him back from the trailer where his mom has been killed and it's on fire and he's trying to get in because of, I didn't buy the initial premise and it is very long and it is a very slow part of the movie. I was just so that whole section of the movie, I'm just kind of over. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't get it. It doesn't make sense to me. I don't know. I don't know what to do with that. Um, I don't know. Do you have anything on that? Uh, I mean, honestly, dude, generally I am not completely sure this movie has a real plot, like a thought through plot, um, which is weird because <laughs> but the so rest of it, I'm more willing to accept because it's so lighthearted. Oh, no, it's so I, just like, you know, I am with you again. This is one of those right. things where it is okay that mostly the plot of this movie is window dressing for its vibes and its energy. But in moments with real stakes where the plot has to carry, the substance has to carry a scene through, it just kind of becomes obvious that you're like, 
this doesn't fit. This isn't right. This doesn't feel right. Um, this this lags, right? This isn't this doesn't make sense even because suddenly it's the the energy is no longer there. So you have to think about what is actually going on. And like you said, you suddenly are slapped in the face with like this doesn't make any sense within the plot of the movie. And I think I don't know. In a weird way, that's another example of what we're talking about, where it's all well and good to just be like, I'm gonna go all in on propulsion. But when that propulsion stops and you have to think, it's usually gonna be a a negative part of your viewing experience. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think that's I think that's completely correct. And and in a way maybe betrays like what what this movie might be lacking in in depth, right? Because yeah. the, the way when you worry that way, it's like very clear. Without that incredible, like you said, propulsiveness, something you know, you end up missing something significant. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I can I can agree with that. I think that's spot on. Uh, yeah. Honestly, I don't have too much else. So, Mike, uh, why don't you take it? What do what What do you have? Why is what holds this movie back? Um, you know, I got one other big one. I think generally, and this is kind of maybe retreading some of that ground, but generally the butterfly effect kind of movie kind of wears on me at this point in my, you know, my time watching cinema. You know, the whole movie is kind of an if-then sequence of scenes, and it's not always in a good way. You know, it kind of feels clunky at times, like you said. It has these moments where, like, the if-then doesn't actually make sense. And then it, it asks for a lot of suspension of disbelief that all of these people and stories intertwine in the way that he kind of makes it intertwine at the end. Um, you know, the butterfly flapping its wings doesn't always feel like it should produce the storm or the decisions that are made, right? And yeah, I, it literally retreading. Uh, you feel it, especially on rewatches. But uh, at some points, also, like you said, there are moments in the movie the first time I saw it that I was like, this doesn't make sense as an intertwining in a decision-making like schema for these characters. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of part of the, that fad of making such intricate butterfly effect plots. Um, but I felt it on this rewatch. So I think other than that, you know, I, I'm always a little torn on how satisfied I am by the return to Turkish selling the diamond at the end. I kind of yeah. like the gypsy plot. And, like, the shooting up the vans and all that stuff as being a great ending to the movie. Um, it just feels like he's trying to bring us back to the beginning. And I, I don't know if that works other than that's just he clearly had the end in mind at the beginning. So, I, I don't yeah, know. I could see Not that. sure if you have thoughts. I, 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 I enjoyed it. I, I yeah. enjoyed that specific part. Um, you know, I, I, I ended up – this isn't – I, I don't fundamentally I don't disagree. I, I do think there's a certain personal preference side of that. Sure. I almost saw the movie and very much Lockstock is similar, almost like a Seinfeld episode. Sure. Where it's like <laughs> that's funny. You know, the, the the stories are just sort of coincidental and the the enjoyment is in the ways that they keep coincidentally lapping or leaping into each other, right? So you you know, in Seinfeld it's so great. I've just been rewatching Seinfeld a lot lately. But in Seinfeld, it's so great when this little B plot from the beginning suddenly becomes incredibly relevant at the end and is like the sure. main reason why something can't happen. So I, I sort of am okay with that, but I also won't disagree because I think there's a there's a preference side of that. And it's yeah. legitimate to be like, uh, that plot can be a little bit wearing, right? It can, sure. can be a little bit like, okay, I get it. 
you know, all of these weird coincidences keep happening and these characters are barely touching each other and, and blah, blah, blah. Um, so I get it, but I, I just happened to, to be there for it, I guess is what I would say. Yeah, that's fair. And, and really, you know, my other point, my last point is also a preference, which is I'm never really a big fan of voiceover narration in movies, uh, especially when it yeah. runs like the course of the entire movie. I think in Snatch, it helped, it covers a lot of exposition. And I think Jason Statham does a really good job with it. But as an overarching tool, I almost always find it kind of lazy and distracting more often than not. And it's, I never feel like it's not overdone. Like I'm not hearing too much of what a character has to think or say about a scene that could have been left unsaid. And, you know, obviously it's a huge part of this movie. So again, that's a preference, not really a what didn't work, but I am not a fan of voiceover narration. Also, one of the only cases, interestingly, where I would say Snatch is definitively worse than Lock, Sock, and Two Smoking Barrels. The narration in that movie fits the characterization better because you're hearing it from, if I remember correctly, one of the antagonists. Yes. And there's a little bit more character in it, and there's a little bit more humor in it. Uh, I just remember more of it, which I think is a good sign. Well, and and I'm Um, not sure you need narration from your audience stand in like have them be surprised by what's going on by how they respond to it in the scene um i don't think (laughs) i don't think i need a director being like and you should be surprised by this audience (laughs) my (laughs) my one counterpoint too is that um i think i think he does use it to help keep the pace so high yeah because he doesn't have to break excuse me, doesn't have to bake exposition into the normal kind of dialogue and plot in the same way, right? So you think about the beginning, all of this stuff Turkish tells us about Tommy and about whatever. In a normal movie, it's like, oh, I have to like somehow find a reason for him to introduce this to the audience. And so that ends up taking time and you have to blah, blah, blah. So I I wonder if that's the, the biggest advantage it gives. Uh, but again, I, I don't. I'm, I wouldn't strictly speaking push back hard on that. So, yeah, yeah. I think that's fair. I think all that's fair. That's all I got. Anything else for? Okay, uh, let's just go ahead. Let's just roll through, Mike. Let's let's get into stray thoughts. Uh, stray thoughts is pretty much exactly what it says. Mike and I have each collected a set of different uh, thoughts that don't fit into any particular category that we just wanted to mention. Um, I'll go ahead first, if that's okay. Yeah. Bricktop being introduced by coldly having one of his subordinates killed only to immediately have the subordinate that did the killing be killed for being untrustworthy feels like a scene from the far side. And I love it. (laughs) That's actually one of my favorite moments in the whole movie. I almost mentioned it earlier with the Huber thing, but the fact that he's giving the cliche villain like speech of like, Hmm, not very trustworthy, are you, Tommy? And then he goes on in the background. You see that guy get killed. And then he's like, ah, never really could land for you. And then he immediately starts going into another speech and walking away. As behind him, that second guy gets killed. Yeah. I and, then it cuts, and then it cuts to the two boxers and they're stunned. He's like, get back to fighting. <laughs> like, it's an amazing moment. It's a great yeah. introduction. I love it. Yeah. I'm going to start off mine with a fun fact. Uh, Brad Pitt based his character of Mickey off of Benicio Del Toro's Toro's character from The Usual Suspects. 
which is interesting that they're both in this movie. But yeah, Benicio plays a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah, Fast talking guy who only gets about five minutes in that movie and then gets killed. And Brad Pitt ultimately made him Irish and kind of extended the, the, at least the, the line reading part of it. Um, And I thought it's great. Similarly unintelligible. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I always remember him in Usual Suspects where he's like, I'll flip you. I'll flip you for real. (laughs) It's great. He'll flip you? (laughs) So good. Anyway. Do you think we'll do the Usual Suspects, you in? Oh, I don't know. You have to talk about Kevin Spacey Spacey so much. So much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, The Pixar rule, I've mentioned on previous podcasts, but the Pixar rule is that coincidences can get characters into trouble but not out of it. This is going to be my essay, but I just want to note... Um, Lockstock and Snatch are like weird exceptions to that rule because sure. the whole plot is built on coincidences slowly getting our characters into deeper trouble, into a worse and worse situation, all the way until a stroke of luck basically gets them back to the status quo. Yeah, And yeah. it's just so interesting to me. It's, it feels like almost common for this kind of crime movie. I can think of a couple movies that do that. Uh, I like that plot. It's just, it's just interesting to me. Uh, yep. So, yeah. Yep. Um, I have a lot of friends to talk about putting subtitles on for Brad Pitt, and I wanted to get your ruling on that because I think that is like defeats the purpose of the movie. Yeah, I think that's I here's the only reason why I could maybe see a defense of it, which is that I already struggle with some of the other accents in these two movies. Sure. So there's maybe a degree to which I should be understanding more than I do. Um as in as a not British English speaker, also an underrated line from cousin Avi. Uh, why does no one speak English? I thought you guys invented the language. Yeah. yeah I had this in my, was, I had my, yeah, my yeah, yeah. thoughts. I'm like, he's um, right. The British, British words are weird. He's right. I, I don't it's know how they can't understand. speak this. So, so, so that's the only <laughs> argument I would, I would accept for like why you want to turn on the subtitles. It's like, I'm already understanding less than I'm even supposed to, but yeah, obviously it defeats the point. You're supposed to not understand him. The character's, reference that so yeah, yeah. so yeah I'm, I'm out i'm out okay just making sure wanted a ruling that's where i've always stood too like i've almost been offended uh, by people asking me but anyway go yeah. on i i can accept that i can accept that um the implication that saul Vinny and tyrone just stand there watching the entire time boris cuts off frankie's arm and wraps in the newspaper is actually hilarious yeah and i, I did <laughs> not realize it the first time because it cuts away so like in the one scene um well, and it's particularly funny because they could have, like, he put down his gun, so they could have grabbed the gun and, like, gotten power back in the situation. Because what happens is Boris is pointing the gun at them as, like, I'm going to take the briefcase. And they're like, you just killed the only person who has the, the or I'm going to take the diamond. They're like, you just killed the only person who has the, the uh, combination. So he puts the gun down, takes out a knife that he has for some reason, starts swinging oh boris and then it cuts away and then it cuts back and he's like very neatly just wrapping up the arm and they're all looking horrified and he just picks it up and grabs his gun and walks out so there's a couple things a we have to imagine they've just stood there horrified the (laughs) entire time and b they've been so horrified that they didn't even pick up the gun or do anything to get back the power of the situation I just love the fact that I, I didn't realize that the first time. You have to sort of notice that. Of like, yeah, yeah. Wait a second. It's a great little joke. Yeah. Uh, mine's related to that. 
and it's just a, a pop quiz, John. Is anyone in this movie good at being a criminal? Anyone. <laughs> like, any single character. I mean, Bullet Tooth Tony, but then he gets shot accidentally. I was like, he gets Avi. caught up with these idiots. I don't know. So, I guess no one. They are all really, really bad. Yeah, I think, absolutely. I think that's probably one of the jokes. Yeah, yeah. I think... Oh, I, that's- um... The girl who mans the bookie office uh, <laughs> is never not in control of that situation. Nonplussed. Unfazed. Nonplussed the whole time. Yeah. Uh, do, 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 do. <coughs> it just now hit me. This is another like little joke I didn't necessarily realize. But Saul and Vinny at the end are trying to dispose of you know, multiple bodies. Despite the fact that they are one of the only characters who never kill anyone over the course of the yeah. entire movie. Is that great? I, Yeah. When I realized that, again, I just really enjoyed it. It tickled me, Mike. And they're in a campsite that has like 13 bodies in it. It's going to go real yeah. poorly for them. And happen to have the two. I didn't realize that either. Yeah, that they have, they just, they're not connected with that, but that's why the cops pulled them over. Yeah. Oh, yeah. my God. It's, it's a mess. Why does he have a tea cozy on his head? Anyway... <laughs> Um, do you, let me ask you this. Would you like if all business dealings ended with someone giving you a dog? Uh, yeah. Okay. I'm in. Just checking. <laughs> yeah. I loved now, it. I was wait, like, wait, wait. this is fantastic. Let's define business dealing. If I go down to the grocery store and buy like, yep, like getting a know, dog chocolate, that's a business dealing. They hand <laughs> yeah, me a red eye coffee, getting a dog. That's a little tough. I feel like. I feel like there's gonna be a lot of unwanted dogs in this scenario, uh, so yeah, I'm 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 more ambivalent now. More ambivalent. <laughs> okay, fine. Uh, so just ma- major business deals, you're good with major though? business over a thousand dollars. Like I'm buying in. a house, you're like, give me a dog for this house. <laughs> Absolutely, I okay. go to that bank. Why don't we start that bank, Mike? That's I'm in. Uh, I initially thought that Boris surviving being hit by the car was a plot hole, but on reflection, given the point of the character refusing to die over and over again as the movie goes on, it's actually really funny in hindsight. Yeah, it's hilarious. So, yeah, the first time I was like, there's no way he survived being physically flipped into the air by a car. But again, in hindsight, I think it's great. Yeah, absolutely. I'm with it. Um... (laughs) Buying a dog a squeaky toy just for it to, like, eat the squeaky toy is the most relatable thing I've ever seen in the movie. That is exactly what my old dog... That's exactly what my old dog, Hank, was pretty much like. He's like, oh, a squeaky toy. And he, like, tried to swallow it, and you have to take it from him. And you're like, no, 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 no. (laughs) No, you can't do that. And I always thought of this movie. Every time. Every single time I thought of this movie. Uh, From Wikipedia. Snatch also appears on Empire Magazine's 2008 poll of the 500 greatest movies of all time at 466. Interesting. Not a podium, not a podium finish exactly, but I don't know. Happy to I be just here. Thought that was weird. Yeah, it is. Happy weird. to be here. It's very strange. <laughs> it's fan vote, I guess. I don't know. Fan, um, yeah, yeah. Not going to lie, and this kind of is a John Wick callback, but showing someone as a leader of a dogfighting ring is the quickest way ever for me to want them to die. And Bricktop sucks in this movie. And I am so happy yeah. when he dies. Also a little story moment because it's 
meant to make you like Turkish more because Turkish makes a comment about like how much he hates them after that or like yeah. disliking them. So that's yeah, fair. It does a couple of things. Um, shout out, shout out to the Wikipedia picture for Jason Statham. Uh, <laughs> what? <laughs> if you if you just go to the Jason Statham Wikipedia. In fact, Mike, do that now, because this is the most blank neutral expression any human being has ever worn in all of history <laughs> that guy i looks don't like, know why that guy looks like my ups driver I don't, I don't isn't that weird it it's is. so weird that that's like you know and obviously wikipedia is like difficult you know they have to find an unlicensed picture and all this stuff but that's the picture for jason Statham. it's just such an odd picture i love it, it. is that's so weird man okay yeah okay okay um the bookie robbery scene is legit an episode of the three stooges, but for criminals. And I think it's a masterful scene. It yeah. is. It tickles me it. so much all the way through. I think the highlight is when they shoot the door. Uh, they shoot the door and the bullet ricochets. It's the one guy sad. seems like he's shot. And then he's like, you're not even bleeding. You're not even shot. They sit there, they take off their masks. They see the camera they realize how screwed they are, and then Tyrone just opens the door because it opened in, not out, and that's why they couldn't get out. <laughs> so good. It's so good. Oh, my God. Uh, this is my last one. Did the modest critical backlash to this movie force Guy Ritchie to move on to other kinds of movies? And if so, is that like, well, I guess this is just my commentary now. That would be a real shame. I would have been perfectly happy if he kept making, just remaking this story, like, you know, at least three or four more times. I think that would have kept getting better. Uh, but I don't know. I guess I, that's kind of rhetorical. You don't have the answer, but. I generally view Guy Ritchie in the Michael Bay arm of cinema where I don't think he cares one wink about what critics say. <laughs> Uh, and obviously he just got bigger and bigger projects. So I don't, yeah, I don't think, I think money. You think, think he was just riding the wave. He was just, uh, yeah, just yeah, like, yeah. okay, cool. More money. I I'll think. take it. I'll do something else. Eh, fair he enough. started taking on studio action films after this and then studio, bigger and bigger studio projects. And I think those just aren't going to, they're not going to pay him to make snatch. Right. Or Lockstock. Yeah. So it's tough, but I think you're right. Um, I have probably like five or six left. So, are you asking me to believe that Benicio del Toro is knocked out in his car the entire time after that fender Something bender? about that doesn't add up, does it? Yeah, it's kind of like ridiculous. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it goes from night to day or day to night. I mean, it, I don't know. It just seems absurd he, to me. Am I just? I, I'm I'm reaching here. Am I remembering wrong? Is he drunk or something? Doesn't it imply? Or no, I don't think so. I think he's just. I don't think so. Goofy. Yeah, doesn't make sense. You're right. Uh, did you know what the color periwinkle blue was before you saw Snatch? Nope. Okay. Moving on. (laughs) (laughs) I love hearing British people mock uh, and impersonate Americans. When Jason Statham says, why didn't you pop a gas in his ass, Tommy? I was like, is that what we talk like? I, I, I guess that's right. I thought it was surprisingly on board. I just like the impression that we leave on the rest of the world as a country. Oh, it's good. Uh, next, I could have lived my entire life without hearing Bricktop with his ugly, gross teeth and s- 
mannerisms describe how a pig eats a human body. Um, it's actually just, secretly though another great scene we didn't. It call is. Out. It's kind but of. But I also just yeah. like did, did nightmare fuel. I just didn't need it. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, actually, but I also can I can it. I build off that real quick and just make yeah. one more point? Uh, that's the scene where the sheer stupidity of Saul and Vinny is really like hammered in, because yeah. literally, like the most threatening person in human history walks in and very coolly describes to them the process of like um, disposing of bodies after they've robbed off a bookie who told them. Or, or the girl said, do you even realize who you're robbing? Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And at the end of that speech, they're just like, hey, we don't know who you are, but can you like leave? We have a do lot to do. you mind leaving? <laughs> it's just like, man, guys, at this point, I almost feel like you deserve to die. Yeah. yeah it's yeah, tough. Yeah. It's they're tough. dumb. Three stooges, man. Three stooges, um, you're right. I am incredibly skeptical of anyone who walks around drinking milk in the middle of day. Just weird. weird. It's just weird, man. Uh, milk was a bad choice, uh, to quote the, the Will Ferrell of the world. I want to shout out a great line. You should never underestimate the predictability of stupidity. I, in Who some ways, Brick Top say that, uh, bullet to Tony. Fantastic. I'll remember that. That's a yeah, great line. Kind yeah. of, kind of has come to light in the last few years in America, but I digress. Um, and my last one. Ever since I saw this movie as a teenager, I've wanted Mickey's crying Mary chest and rib tattoo. Or I don't really know if that's Mary. That's just what I assume it is. Um, I get that I probably need a six pack and to be Brad Pitt to pull it off. But I, I yeah. just think it's, it's a super sweet tattoo when Mike, he like takes his shirt off. It's it's just awesome. So let's out. make a deal. Let's make a deal. I'm going to get the jacket from Drive. Okay. And you're going to get that tattoo. Okay. Uh, and I guess that's the full extent of the deal. But and, are you in? Yeah. You'll get as handsome as Ryan Gosling, and I'll get as shredded as Brad Pitt and Snatch. And we'll just, we'll make no this work. And then, and then our future is secured. This is a good, this <laughs> yeah. is a good idea. Then I can talk in that oh. accent all the time. <laughs> I don't know about this anymore. <laughs> I'm having second <laughs> thoughts. Okay. Uh, that's it for Stray Thoughts. Stick around. After the break, we will get into some essays. Welcome to the final part of the podcast. As we said earlier, uh, Mike and I have each prepared some essays, kind of diving deep into some aspect of the movie or possibly a tangent off of it. Uh, I think I'm going to go first, right, Mike? Sounds good. Here we go. They say you have your whole life to write your first album and six months to write your second. It's difficult to attribute this quote because it's a sentiment that's pervaded popular music as long as it's existed. And the idea is one almost anyone can grasp. Often authors, musicians, game designers, and maybe especially filmmakers will emerge with one excellent, fully formed, well-realized artistic statement and then find that they have to make a follow-up and are expected to make it in a tiny fraction of the amount of time they likely spent thinking about that first work. There's a couple different versions of how this particular situation plays out. In terms of what would be most ideal, I think most of us would probably like to be Eric Barone. 
I don't know if you've heard of the name, but if you've followed video games in the last seven or eight years, then you've probably heard of Stardew Valley, an indie farm simulating game, which is, trust me, more exciting than it sounds, that Eric worked on for over five years before releasing it in 2016. It was released to huge acclaim and tremendous financial success. In fact, his success was so immense and he had no overseer or company pushing him forward that he's been able to settle into periodically tweaking the game and releasing free updates and kind of just doing whatever he wants. In fact, only recently, seven years after Stardew Valley's release, did Eric announce that he was working on a new game. And even then, he didn't have to give any details or even a release date. As far as the first effort goes, things here worked out about as well as they could. One of my other favorite follow-up stories is of Tom Schultz and the band Boston. Schultz was a perfectionist and a multi-instrumentalist. He'd been working on a variety of songs for over six years by the time the band's first album was released. Nearly everything on that first album, apart from the drums and vocals, is being played by Schultz, who is fanatic about working at his own pace and and in his own basement studio, much to the chagrin of his label. His work paid off in a big way. Boston's debut album sold 17 million copies, making it one of the most successful debut albums ever. But forced to turn around the second album as quickly as possible, Schultz ended up releasing Don't Look Back just two years later. Even though it was also a successful album, he was actually very unhappy with it. And amid legal disputes and kind of intra-band fighting, the band's third album ended up being delayed eight years, which is an incredible length of time in the record industry, especially back in the 70s and 80s. In fact, it was delayed so long that many industry analysts believe the band lost a lot of long-term success by failing to capitalize on those early achievements. Finally, we get back to film. Mike often mentions Neil Blomkamp and his fascinating inability to successfully follow up District 9, but for my part, I always found Guy Ritchie to be one of the most interesting examples of the above problem. As we've already mentioned, pretty much every movie critic took issue with Ritchie's second film, Snatch, not for anything to do with the movie itself, but just for its quote-unquote slavish retreading of Ritchie's debut movie, Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels. And to be clear, there are many, many, many similarities between the two films. They feature the same snarky and sarcastic dialogue, the same assembly of seedy underworld figures, the same kind of branching story that loops in on itself, and they generally seem to be set in the same warped vision of London. What's strange, though, is that just six years before Guy Ritchie released Snatch, there was another indie filmmaker who released his second effort at making a movie. Like Ritchie, he followed up a surprise success with a bigger budget film, seemingly set in the same world with the same kind of dialogue, similar characters, and the same broken up story as his first movie. But Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction was not taken to task by critics for its similarities to Reservoir Dogs. Why is that? I would say that Pulp Fiction was perceived by critics to not merely retread the same ground as Reservoir Dogs, but vastly exceed that previous film's reach, ambition, and scope. In Right or Wrong, Snatch was perceived as essentially aiming to be the same kind of movie as Lockstock, not just like it superficially, but in its essence and its ambition being the same 
film. And the thing about that which intrigues me the most is the realization that much of what we perceive as quality, or even lack thereof, in art is just the narrative we're telling ourselves about the art. This isn't a bad thing. There's a reason why I find beauty in a Pollock painting that I wouldn't find in a drip painting by my three-year-old niece, even though aesthetically they might be similar. But it can sometimes lead us to make snap reactions to pieces without really understanding them in the correct context. It's a little bit like the MVP. Theoretically, there's an objective measurement of who is the best player, but time and again, the vote will end up going to the best story. So let me offer one counter narrative to the idea that Snatch is a failure because it's not more unique or more ambitious than Richie's prior film. I propose that Snatch is actually a different kind of follow-up, that it's the artist inflicted with a vision they cannot escape until it's been perfectly captured. To briefly dip back into the music world, I find the best way to illustrate this is with the work of U2. They released a popular debut album, and though they would eventually branch out into very different styles of songwriting and album construction, initially they repeated the same style, lyrical themes, and sound for their first three albums. While that could be perceived as an inability to produce a unique sounding follow-up, I actually interpret it as the band refining their initial vision, wanting to realize it as faithfully as possible. In other words, they didn't branch out to make new kinds of music until they had successfully captured what they wanted that initial sound to be. By this logic, their third album was not yet another rehash, but a culmination of their effort, of the kind of music they had wanted to make when they first became musicians. Now it's tough to say if this is the place Richie was in when he made Snatch, but in a sense the logic checks out to me. Lockstock, for all of its charm, wears its low budget on its sleeve. It was made for just 1.6 million pounds. Richie's ambition is palpably straining against the financial restraints he had to work within for the entire movie. It's not difficult to imagine, given the dramatic increase in resources, him taking the opportunity to try and land a definitive version of this particular kind of story. And while some artists probably get stuck in that cycle, there's something I find admirable about that kind of restlessness, that unwavering passion to realize one particular vision. Now, obviously I don't really know if this is an accurate reading of Snatch, or for that matter, Pulp Fiction or Boston or any of these artists in the way they approach their creative work. While this is the kind of discussion about art I really love, I actually think the most important takeaway is realizing the extent to which we respond to narratives of art rather than art in and of itself. The same movie in two wildly different contexts will elicit two wildly different responses, meaning that the narrative behind works is bound up inexorably with the works themselves. Even and perhaps especially when there isn't a narrative behind art at all. Think of how often someone starts talking about a movie that blew them away by saying how little they knew about it before watching it. That's something to keep in mind next time you encounter new art that elicits some kind of strong response. And maybe it's something to ask yourself, am I responding to the art or to the story behind the art?
yeah, so Mike, I don't know. I, I kind of, uh, <laughs> I almost want to say I changed my mind about what I was talking about near the end of the essay, like <laughs> just to be real with you, just to like put it all on the table. You know, there's no secrets here. I have no fear. I can, uh, I can own up to that. But I am still intrigued in, in both topics. So in a sense, I guess I'm curious if you have thoughts on either of the two topics. The first being this question that, frankly, we've been talking about this whole time of how you follow up. You know, the sophomore mm. slump. We've never yeah. heard it that way. Yeah. But how you follow up this amazing debut. Uh, the second being this question of how much what we respond to in a movie is really, you know, responding to the story around the movie. Uh which I think like I only touched the surface of that is a very big conversation, but, but I do genuinely think comes into play here because again, I just can't get over how much every critic couldn't get over this point. Seemingly was very hung up on, you know, this movie suffers because it is too similar to its predecessor, which is just a weird, you know, given that like, it's what I'm saying. It's like, they're not responding to the movie at that point. They're responding to the narrative around the movie. Yeah. So I don't know. Um, do you have any thoughts on either of those points? Yeah, well, I guess I'll, I'll start the second one, actually, just because that's the most immediate. And I think, you know, we live in a time where, you know, it's now 22 years after Snatch came out. Mm-hmm. And it's it's only become more heightened where, you know, there's now far more pre-screenings and there's a lot more, you know, access to of a consensus that forms well before a movie actually comes to the point where I can see it. Right. And thus Mm. there's this like increasing trend that a movie is labeled as good or bad weeks before I even get a chance to sit down the theater. Right. And that's that. And, and that's, there's something, I don't even know how to say it. There's just something very unsettling about that. I think it's left us in a space where more than ever there's a need for, you know, people like you and I and the average moviegoer to find um, curators of cinema that they trust and that they like and who are well-read and and go and see the movies that are being kind of rated poorly by the consensus and may give a different take and you trust their opinion enough to go seek out the movie. Because I, I increasingly find myself in like, you know, the consensus of every Marvel movie is going to be overwhelmingly positive unless you're the Eternals and man, that told me not to see that movie um, <laughs> when it was like, Oh man, even, even this is not doing well. Um, and then like a lot of other movies that may be innovative and trying something new are just gonna, they're gonna bottom out when it comes to the, the large scale conversation of general mm-hmm. consensus, right? Or maybe not bottom yeah. out, but they're not going to be given the proper credit that they're due. And ultimately I think it's hard not to increasingly base what we see in the sea of content based off of that consensus, which means we're going to miss good stuff simply because it didn't, you know, kind of hit the mean or the median or whatever, you know? And I, I don't know. I don't yeah. know if there's anything I have more to say on it, but that, that I guess I would just regurgitate my previous point. The need for trustful and quality curation and knowing who to go to for recommendations is, is greater now than ever um, because of that. And I think Snatch is a victim of that kind of thing, you know? Um, you know, it reminds me, um, yeah, I think that's a great point. I, it reminds me, one of my favorite um, YouTube channels is this guy named Video Game Donkey, and he has these hilarious, like, you know, takes on, on, on video games and all these weirdly edited things and stuff, but occasionally he has 
pretty tremendous insight. At one moment, or in one video, he talks about the, you know, video game critics, and he's he's very critical actually of them. But I, I like what he says. Where at one point he's talking, he says, you know, the best way that you can use critics is to find someone who you who who you follow long enough that you understand both their approach to movies in general, or sorry, to, to what they're criticizing in general, and also their relationship with how you view that same Yes, thing. yes, yes, yes. And because then you can able, because he takes, for example, he's like, so like, let's take me. I hate, so in this context, he says, I hate JRPGs. So this whole genre of games. He says, they're my least favorite thing in the entire world. If you follow me for a while, you will know that. So when I write an JRPG, one star out of five, if you're a fan of the genre, maybe that shouldn't mean a lot to you. You should yeah, think, yeah. okay, well, I know he hates them. And he's like, and then counterintuitively, and he references a specific game that he's like, when I love a JRPG, then everyone who follows me should think, man, this might be incredible because he already is predisposed to hate this. And I just think that's an excellent point. Like there's, there's something that we lose sometimes, I think especially in the age of, Rotten Tomatoes, and, and it, it's kind of a cool thing to, to bash on Rotten Tomatoes, but but it's true. Like, especially in the age of Rotten Tomatoes, I think we lose the sense of, or excuse me, we lose the value of a critic that you you end up having a, a relationship with in terms of, you know, understanding them and understanding their relationship with your taste. Yeah. And that's the, the most ideal way that a critic works. I, Absolutely. I, I and I think that's that's like, so I, I love Rotten Tomatoes. I, I truly do. I actually think it's a very valuable tool, but it's critical to understand what it is as a tool. And it's mm. it's a tool for consensus gathering. Like the majority of people had a positive experience watching this movie. That does not mean that it's a tool for telling you if a movie is good, right? And I think that's yeah. where people get misguided with Rotten Tomatoes is they start using it to ultimately like, set the course of their movie going experience like entirely. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where you're just going to get into group think. You're just going to get into an echo chamber of ultimately seeing pop. I mean, it's just going to constantly push pop in front of you. Right. Which isn't a bad yeah. thing, but, but yeah, to pair that tool with like, man, it's really good to know where culture's at in terms of what it positively responds to. And if I want to engage in culture, I should seek out the movies that culture is constantly giving positive statements about, but then on the other hand, if I want for my own experience, my own enjoyment, like the ability to find movies that speak to my taste, exactly what you're saying. Find some people who you know when you agree with them, you know when you disagree. And ultimately, it's almost like you start having a conversation with them and allow that to guide like what you seek out, especially as you start diving into the non-big budget blockbuster areas of cinema. I just think that's good advice. And I think you're spot on. Yeah, and as for the, the first topic, you know, I think I don't have many in-depth thoughts, but I think there's some basics that cover it pretty quickly. You know, I have obviously found this as someone who does public speaking. I'm a pastor, for those who don't know, and essentially giving TED Talks, right, creative TED Talks every week. Mm -hmm. In the first like year of doing that, you're just like, I have been building up all these thoughts and all these things and all these props and all these metaphors and these movie references and just these things that I want to talk about and I'm passionate about and it kind of floods out of you. And every time you go to prep, it's just like not even work. You're just like, boom, boom, boom. And you're actually like cutting more than you are even like trying to think up new ideas, right? You're like, oh, I can't cover all this today. 
And, and it's like a flood. And I think that's kind of what that first probably experience of making a film or making your first album feels like. But I also totally, you know, year three, year four, it's so hard not to end up into like a barren land of create, create a blankness, right? Where you're just like out of ideas, mm. the buckets run dry. And I think one of the pieces of advice that I was given by a mentor that I have found really valuable for that is coming to think of creativity as like a muscle and a discipline. So don't think of creativity as like this thing that you tap into and it's magic, ooh, but rather it's something that you should be fostering like with everyday practices, like putting pen to paper and just writing free flowing thoughts on this idea, grace, mercy, uh, violence, right? Uh, write down metaphors that come to mind and basically start growing within yourself this ability to connect things together so that when a new topic comes to you that does excite you, the idea of fleshing that out with like, you know, ways to uh, communicate it and ways to depict it and ways to talk about it and to give life to it comes a lot more easily because you've kind of just developed this muscle that you've also strengthened to think of new ideas, right? As you have new yeah. kind of canvases to work with. And that was, that was just very different for me. And I imagine that's very hard for people because I don't think you realize you need to do that until you do your first album and then struggle with the second one, right? Because up until then, it's been your passion project. It's been what you've poured yourself into. It almost becomes work after that to think of something new. And I think that's where yeah. people get slapped in the face and often have a bomb or often have something that falls flat because they just haven't learned the discipline of that yet. Luckily for me, a bad sermon, whatever. I'm not a director who gets a bunch of money after their successful first movie bombs and then doesn't get another shot at it. So mm. I do think there's higher stakes to learn that lesson in their their industries but i i think that's that's what came to my mind as i was thinking of it you just have to endure people like me constantly telling you how bad you are and yeah you know, yeah, yeah whatever sending I, you I'm, sending you notes and you read all those right I, I send oh yeah yeah, all yeah, those yeah, notes yeah i live on my every, twitter feed every sunday which i yeah, don't have yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no i think you're right I, I i like i like the way you word that i i would even you know not to summarizing necessarily but you know the, the phrase i heard that i think really gets at this idea i think that there's something you know you, you think about those for lack of a better term those long-term artists right the people yeah. who who keep generating unique creative exciting different ideas over the course of a career and i i tend to think based on the things i read and the, and the people i listen to almost all of them share a passion about the process over the result, right? Mm, so so yes. it's a question about process versus results that I, I think there's a tendency when we think about, you know, I was going to say art, but actually probably everything, there's a tendency to, to become results oriented and to think, you know, so like if I asked you like, oh, you know, or if I, if I somehow was like, Mike, you need to become a filmmaker and I, I inceptioned that into your brain and you're like, okay, I need to become a filmmaker. I think most people's first thought was, okay, I, I need to make a film. I need to fight, figure out what the result is. And my goal should be that should be this movie that looks like this and feels like this and is this good or whatever. And I think there's something really intriguing that there's a lot of, a lot of people who, as they work on art, when you interview them and, and hear them talk and write about it, what they get excited about is the process. They're like, mm. man, they don't get excited about, oh yeah, the end product. They're like, oh, you know, maybe I've seen that once or twice, 
but it was a really exciting time of like figuring out this thing and trying this out and learning this and all of, and you know all of these things I had to do to make it happen. Um, that's almost the thing they end up getting more excited about. Yeah, and it's not to say that you shouldn't be aiming to have like a great you know product or or great result of your action at the end of your work. Uh, but it is to say that I, I think that is something that we don't necessarily, I, I think a lot of people don't necessarily realize that there is a value in, in cr- generating passion within yourself for the process of art and the process of creating rather than the result of what you might make and what you might create. I have always had an intense nostalgia associated with Snatch for a variety of reasons, often unrelated to the film itself. The who, when, what, and where of seeing it for the first time uh, just really left it lodged in my memory in a very positive way, which in some ways made this the toughest rewatch of any episode we've done because I found myself reflecting on the movie's flaws to a degree that I've never done before and honestly that I rarely do in this podcast setting. What happened this time was that I returned to it older and with a more critical eye for cinema. And in many ways, I found myself walking side by side with Roger Ebert, who harshly critiqued the film. As we already cited from his review, he called it a new arrangement of the same song when it comes to Lockstock. Then later he wrote, Richie isn't interested in crime. He's interested in voltage. As an unfolding event, Snatch is fun to watch even if no reasonable person could hope to understand the plot in one viewing. Richie is almost winking at us that the plot doesn't matter, that it's a clothesline for his pyrotechnics. The movie is not boring, but it doesn't build, and it doesn't arrive anywhere. It's hard to care much about any of the characters, because from moment to moment, what happens to them seems controlled by chance. With each point, in almost a death-nostalgia way, I must admit that I found myself nodding along with most of that. Snatch's chaotic, yet somehow painful structure does seem flawed. Its aimless-to-a-fault plot does seem almost meaningless at times. And its ending, that now, having known what's actually coming, seemed to lack its original momentum, they all kind of stood out like bright neon lights pointing to the parts of this movie that fell short. Yet... What I found incredibly interesting was that despite these newly realized issues, my experience of watching Snatch didn't feel more negative at all than I remembered. In other words, despite my new critiques, I still found myself just as thrilled, just as much wildly enjoying my time with the movie as I ever have. And that's rare for me when returning to a movie that I have nostalgia for. Usually when I, when I do so and find a new awareness of its problems, of its issues, of its, of its poor cinematic expertise, that leads me to lower my estimation of it, which in turn leads me to lower my enjoyment of such movies, at least to some degree. In small ways, like with Pacific Rim, when I realized that it wasn't as thrilling on a small screen, if not dramatically, like with Temple of Doom, when as an adult I realized how horrifying its politics and depictions of women's and people of color are. 
And as I sat with this strange phenomena, this exception to the rule that is Snatch, the reason why hit me like a brick. It's because at the end of the day, I don't think I ever loved Snatch because of its plot, its direction, its game-changing cinematic style. I never adored it like I adore There Will Be Blood, or for the same reasons that I would adore a movie like Pulp Fiction. Now what I realize is that the reason I love Snatch, both back when I first saw it and now, is far simpler. It's a far simpler pleasure. That is, it's entirely because of its characters. I realized, this time watching the movie, that Snatch, more than anything, first drew me in simply because it creates characters that I just enjoy spending time with, who I just love listening to them talk. Mickey and his friends of journeymen, in particular, drew me in and still hold me. Mickey with his fast-talking gibberish, his mysterious background, his fighting spirit, his love of mischief that pours off of his face, and all his clan with their quirks and quick-witted comebacks. But it wasn't just him. I adored listening to Bullet Tooth Tony and still do, listening to him describe armed robberies with obscene, hilarious sexual allegories, grinning woofishly at the buffoons that surrounded him while never seemingly acknowledging his own insanity. I facepalmed and laughed as I soaked up the three Stooges-style characters of Tyrone, Vinny, and Saul, finding their ever-accelerating slide into the deep end of the pool where they can't swim, funny and oddly relatable at times. I even enjoyed Bricktop with his viciousness and his love of pigs. All experienced through the eyes of the audience stand in Turkish, all wildly enjoyable to spend time with regardless of what they are doing or if any of their choices make any logical sense outside of the film. And in that, I realize that perhaps more than any quality of a film, great characters carry within them the capacity to cover a multitude of sins. That is, in my experience of cinema, a film like Snatch can be unbelievably flawed in so many ways that would turn me off from more serious films and yet still create within me a deep sense of pleasure and joy by giving me characters that intrigue with their vibrancy, personality, and energy, with their rich relationships and their chemistry together. I realized that for me at least, there is nothing more magnetic, more whitewashing than good, colorful characterization. And Snatch, despite it all, has that in droves. It is packed full of characters who I'd spend more time with, whose individual worlds are teased and so unbelievably pleasurable to sit with and imagine more of. It left me wanting to sit gleefully with Mickey and miss him whenever he's not on screen, to follow along with Bullet Tooth Tony and wonder how he ended up the way he is, to guffaw at those stooges and wonder how they even made it this far, to with these fascinating people, quirks, ticks, uniqueness and all, and to laugh at their humanity, absurdities, stupidities, and blunders. And at the end of the movie, left me still wanting more. I realized that's what drew me and continues to draw me over and over again to Snatch. So it makes rewatching Snatch still wildly enjoyable every time I see it, even with a keener cinematic eye and more critical awareness. It gave me that feeling of returning And that's why on this rewatch, I realize that I love Snatch, 
because ultimately it gives me that feeling of returning to spend time with old friends in a way that few films can. This cast of oddballs, idiots, misfits, and prodigal sons who tickled my imagination as a 16-year-old and still do all these years later. The kind of friends that you don't mind spending time with, even if you know all the moves and the actual concrete details of what you are doing together may seem meaningless, aimless, or unproductive, but it doesn't matter. The kind of friends that make such details unimportant because the simple act of listening to them and sitting in their orbit that you always enjoyed anyway. That was always what actually mattered with your time together. Snatch is by no means a perfect film, but it does invite me to spend time with people who I like, who intrigue me, who make me laugh, who exist within the confines of this movie and its time on the screen, and who I'll always find pleasure in coming back to see again. And regardless of whatever else I may pick apart, right or wrong, good or bad, I know I'll leave it every time remembering that there are few movies that can claim such a thing. And that alone makes me so grateful to have returned to it now, and it assures me that I will do so many times again. I would like to go on record and say I don't have nostalgia about anything. I have purely objective opinions all the way down. Uh, <laughs> no rose-colored glasses. I think I take, you know, I'm a straight shooter, Mike. I think I'm a little disappointed, frankly, to hear you say that mm. you're so subject to the forces of uh, you know, is this something once I'm 30, 30, how old are you? Like 35 now? 30? 80, 89. Yeah. Do you, do you remember, like, even when you saw this movie the first time, like, was that kind of an interesting experience just to see kind of what the kids were doing, you know, from the perspective of an old timer? Was it kind of a cool experience like that? You and know, that's I've almost always, what you're remembering. I've, is that like Rush? Always felt. That Miyazaki mm-hmm. makes movies that are purely for childish idiots, and that his themes okay. are flat and uninteresting for adults. Are, is, he, is he just catching strays here? What's going on? Are you? This is because this is this is directed at me. You're gonna go for a beloved uh, <laughs> filmmaker just despite me. <laughs> How dare you? I would never do that to A you. A piece of my nostalgic <laughs> childhood that I... <laughs> I would never do that to you. How dare you? Uh, I love you, Miyazaki. All of, your, all of your nostalgic childhood things are like alien. Pulp fiction. And pulp fiction. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I, I do love... I do love... Uh, I, I, I love that piece, though. I think there's, there's a lot of... There's a lot of good stuff there. I think the first thing, or you know, the main thing I latched onto, other than your your crippling uh, love of of things that are nostalgic to you, um, <laughs> I think the main thing I I latched onto, I, I do like that perspective of characters in in a in a film and in stories and the way that there's something there's something warm about that, right? There's something that is is so meaningful in a weird way that may even sound like dorky talking about such, no, a, yeah. such a, a movie like this but 
you know, there, there's something that can be very, very powerful about that. In a weird way, I almost think I struggle with the opposite. Like, you know, I, I have realized over time, I actually find it very hard to approach new material uh, because I, I'm so invested in characters and situations and the that warm feeling you get from revisiting something. I yeah. find that um, that can make it very difficult to, to approach a new thing. On the one hand, I'm inclined to apologize for that because I, I, I think it's something I would like to you know, change about how I, how I react to things. On the other hand, I actually think like almost everyone does this. Yeah. Um, and, and the place where you see it most often weirdly is music. Almost everyone, you know, I, I remember talking to this musician at, at some point, this would have been 10 or 15 years ago, but he was telling me, I, I was actually talking to him about why he didn't listen to at the time when I can, where I said, you know, was new music. And I was like, you know, you haven't listened to all these interesting things. And he was like, well, you know, most people will end up listening to the music that they listen to in their kind of 20s and, and throughout their like 20s and 20 up to 25. Uh, that's what they're going to re-listen to the rest of their life. Most people. And it's actually, I, I think it's, it's a surprisingly powerful force that people don't always necessarily understand that makes it so much more... Um, I don't know. There's just such an interesting reward, which I think is what you're talking about, and returning to something that you are familiar with and that you enjoy. Yeah. And uh, I guess in a way, I'm almost preaching a cautionary tale where it's like sometimes that can hinder your ability to encounter new art, I think, is, is maybe the cautionary side of it. But either way, I, I think in and of itself, it's not necessarily a good or a bad thing. It's just an interesting effect. I agree with that. And um, certainly something I can, I, it's interesting that it comes to you with this movie. Cause for me, it comes much more with lock, stock and two smoking barrels. Sure. Just Cause yeah. of the nature of how much more I rewatch that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I, I'm there for that. I don't know if you have any thoughts on, on in a sense, I guess that negative side of it or, or that possibly detrimental perspective on it. Well, it's weird. I don't know if it's just on my brain as a metaphor, but it, it kind of goes back to the conversation after your monologue where it's more just thinking of this stuff almost as tools, right? Where it's sure. it's like, hey, I should be engaging in art that challenges me and engages me in new perspectives and is bringing me into some sort of you know growth or experience that I haven't had before and pushing on me and and opening my mind and yada, yada, yada. Like, I, I think that's part of the human experience that we should embrace. And then on the other side of it is as a tool, I think there are just like these artifacts of culture and art that just make us feel good. And there are days where that's all I need, right? And that's the most, the movies I rewatch the most are the ones that I know pull from me a feeling that I need on that given day. Either I'm feeling sad or I need to pick me up or or I'm feeling too happy and I need to watch there will be blood and feel bad about humanity. Um, you know, anyways, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's something I'm going to, because I know it works. I know it's effective at doing X thing. Right. Right. And I think there's, there's a valuable part of our experience with, with cinema, um, that that helps fill. I think that's good. However, I do think that there is a, a spiral inward and a, a again echo chambering that can occur within yourself if that's all you ever set out seek out right if all you're ever doing is using 
um, various mediums of storytelling to kind of reinforce and give you the feelings that you want, I think you're just closing yourself off to growth into ultimately the power of what these narratives can do in changing you, not just giving you the feelings or the emotions that you remember and want back. Right. Yeah. Um, which I think is just the same different words for what you already said, but I think it is helpful to like, you don't have to reject nostalgia. You just have to understand where it should belong and to what degree in your approach to narrative and in cinema and ultimately these wonderful tools that we have been given to um, grow our consciousness and our experience and in our perception of the world. Well, and, and to extrapolate off of that for a little bit too, because I, I, I agree with what you're saying. I think that, you, you know, I, I, there's this interesting conversation. I think that's also a part of this, which is the value that you get from new experiences despite the inherent challenge in exposing yourself to something that you don't initially understand. And I'm saying that very loosely because I'm trying to make it where that works for movies as well as it does for people. And I think that's where things get interesting because, you know, on the one hand, obviously you and I think that someone's perspective on art that they take in, that they consume is a huge impact on their worldview. But even if you don't accept that, because I know a lot of people are like, whatever, I just watch movies. And I'm like, okay, fair enough. But even if you don't accept that, that same process is at play with how you just engage people, right? Yeah. You know, there there is a tendency where it is much easier and and safer, I guess, and, and more comfortable and warmer to just kind of keep your circle tight. And, and to just think like the challenge again, inherent in seeking out people with different perspectives and then in seeing things that are, you know, talking to people with different experiences and in just in finding new people that I'm not familiar with can sometimes feel immense. And it is so much easier to just be like, okay, well, these people, I just kind of know, and there's no surprises and there's nothing that I don't understand and things are great. But after a long time, you suddenly find that you're unable to, you know, approach the world with curiosity and, and able to find new new nuances to, to what the world is actually like. And ultimately that severely limits your worldview, right? Like that, that really puts a hard boundary on how much of the different multitude of experiences you'll be able to at least, if not fully understand, at least come in contact with and appreciate on some level. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think it's it's applicable in art, and it's but it's also applicable just in how how we live life sometimes, you know. guys thank you once again for listening to the podcast uh mike and i do have a final question we have each prepared for the other before that though we want to let you know on the next episode we are going to be discussing 2015's mad max fury road uh the george miller directed action icon witness me slash the I was honestly waiting that whole time for you to do one of those things. I thought you were going to do the, uh, what's the thing they shout when they spray their, 
spray, spray the the spray paint on their mouth and then spray paint. Okay, cool, cool, good, no, good, <laughs> good, good, good. Goal. Okay, uh, that'll be exciting. Let's do the final questions, Mike. Here's what I got for you. Let's put you in the place of cousin Avi. You're in okay. the UK. Mm-hmm. You're trying to find an 86 carat diamond that's right for nice. You endure car wrecks, crazy gunmen, uh, your partner torturing people, multiple murder attempts. And in the case of Cousin Avi, once he accidentally kills Tony, he decides, you know what, I'm done with this, and he leaves. I want to ask, would you have made it that far? At what point in that process are you like, you know what, I'm in over my head here. This is too much for me. Do you even, I guess I should start, do you even get to, to London? You're yeah. your dual guy. Okay, so you get I've to liked, London. I like, like the UK. I don't love international fl- travel, though, so that is like a, okay. there is like a 50-50 item bummer. go. He's taking yeah. a pill, so he's he's got something to help him with that. Yeah, it's just the whole process. It's just like, uh, you know. Um, I think the moment someone was like, let's go meet with this guy named Bullet to Tony, I'd just be like. That's tough. I'd be like, no, <laughs> and then I'd leave. <laughs> yeah, that does not sound this like something a, I want to do at all. This is a really boring movie if you're yeah. there. <laughs> Check, please. I, I honestly didn't expect that to end, because he hasn't done anything that bad at that point. Yeah, like, I don't know. It's just like, hey, I got this guy we need to talk to. He's a psychopath named Bullet to Tony. I'd be like, no. Why would I You're do that? That's, that's a hard no for me, still be it. I think I think the windshield torture of the guy is pretty tough. That, that's, yeah. That's oh, when, yeah. That's what I would be like. You know, maybe I'm going to leave this to you. I have something. I just have an errand to run, and I just get a... Get a yeah. And then... Blomp, 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 blomp. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that's how that would play out. See, I would have predicted that was how that was going to go from the moment you told me his name was Bullet Tooth Tony. And I would have been like, you know what? I see where this ends. I'm not. So you doing have this. what you're just saying. You have better pat- pattern recognition than I do. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah I don't yeah, really yeah, need yeah. to see this play out. I know how it's gonna play out. Oh, fair enough. Fair enough. Can't fault you for that. Okay. Let me ask. Let me, well, I guess you already answered yours. So let me uh, let me ask you mine. So yeah. Ah, and uh, we'll get all rules like real world rules out of the equation. So in a mm-hmm. world in which this can happen is where we're basing this. Sure. What weird thing would you try to throw into every business dealing if you could? So not mm-hmm. a dog, but just like, no matter what, if you make a deal with someone, you're like, oh, and here, you have to take this also. Honestly, I, hear me out. Let me finish. Okay. I been... Plants. <laughs> nice. So... I'm in New York City, and I only recently bought a houseplant. And to be honest with you, from where I'm sitting at my desk, I'm looking at it thinking it might be dying. But, but it, has, it has improved the quality of the room so much that, first of all, I'm sad I didn't get on the train earlier. Mm. And second of all, I just think people need more green in their houses. You know, I just think in general, I, I, I'm at the stage of my life. This is also just, you know, this is just a call to anyone. Uh, I will happily accept a plant for any occasion, for any reason. Just just throw them at me, you know, just anything that comes up. If you have a house plant that is, I will stipulate uh, that the less likely it is to die, the better. <laughs> 
um, just based on on prior experience. Uh, but yeah, I think that would be good. And you know, honestly, as the world keeps dying, that's going to become more and more valuable. I definitely thought you were going with the environmental angle at first, and I was like, oh, that's very yeah. noble of you, John. But no, nah, just... I just think if it's it looks nice. Yeah, yeah, just okay. makes me feel better. Fine. Is that not All ultimately why we do everything, John? You know, I had this book by Anne Rand once. You should give him that. You should give him Atlas Shrugged. Whatever. The, the best quote I heard about Ayn Rand is someone said, I read Ayn Rand. I found myself agreeing with the first 75% of every sentence, but then losing her at, and therefore you should be a huge asshole to everyone. <laughs> I, I always liked that too. I'm with you. Even if I would agree, I'm not sure if I'm there for the first 75% of the sentence either, but I do agree that that being the landing place of everything is a little tough. Yeah, it's kind of funny how that's true for her and Marx, where Marx is like, this is how the world yeah. works. And you're like, yeah, I, I agree. And, it's like, and this that is what sense. will happen. And you're like, what okay. <laughs> the hell take, did take you a just breath. say? <laughs> Mike, what, about uh, you? What, would you, what would you fold into any every business venture? My immediate joke dealing. answer is one of my children. Um, okay. But I think... I, how, I think. Hey, how are things going with the newborn? Huh? Still still uh, eating bananas or whatever. Um, ah, well. That's a callback to the last podcast. I think the more on-brand one is definitely just like a copy of There Will Be Blood. Like a weird kind of Jehovah's Witness thing where I'm like, oh, and here, welcome to my Lord and Savior. There Will Be Blood. Paul Thomas Anderson. It feels right. Hmm. Hmm. So you're just to wrap my head around this, you're proposing that every single, in fact, you said business transaction. Yeah. Yeah. Grocery store. Yeah. Wouldn't it be easier just to put the movie for like free access somewhere? Wouldn't that like, no, No. you want to, you want to force it on. There are digital copies of the Bible and that has not stopped the Mormons right. from handing yeah. those suckers out. So, mm, mm. you know, it's a great take. It's just, a, Mike, it's, it's just the time, way things are. It's about time. I, I point this out. I think you have a problem. <laughs> How <laughs> dare you? <laughs> I'm a little, I'm a little nervous. Uh, boy. Oh yeah. Well, to, Mike, anything, any last thoughts, any final notes on Guy Ritchie's 2000 masterpiece? Dads. Yeah. You I, like I was, dads. I, that one's on me. That one's on me. Ma, a caravan. That. that was a layup. Thank you all so much for listening. I'm Jonathan Devine. Mike Overstreet. Okay. Nice. Thank you for the buildup. Thank you for sucking in breath. I just so really had to get that the into full. the microphone. I was out of breath from all my, uh, my, uh, you know, Brad Pitt mimicry. Yep. Yep. Good times. Good times. Thank you all for listening. <laughs>